Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. This episode is another instalment of the Readings Kids Podcast. In this edition, kids bookseller Angela Crocombe interviews the author Jane Godwin about her most recently published book, A Walk in the Dark. Another Readings bookseller, Danny Solomon, wrote of the book Five Teenagers Are on a Night Walk in the Otway Ranges. With no adults supervising, this is their chance to prove their capabilities to themselves. After all, as their principal says, it's just a walk in the dark. What's there to worry about? As it turns out, rather a lot. But like all the best wilderness survival stories, A Walk in the Dark is a book where the protagonists emerge from the wild as changed people. As the reader, you follow them through life and death situations, cheering their personal growth as much as you're cheering for their survival. It is fantastically tense. Here's Angela Crocombe speaking with Jane Godwin. Okay, hi, I am Angela Crocombe and I'm here today to talk to Jane Godwin. Jane Godwin is the highly acclaimed author of over 35 books for children and young people across all styles and ages. Her work is published internationally and she has received many commendations. Jane's most recent novel is A Walk in the Dark and her most recent picture books are Don't Forget, illustrated by Anna Walker, Families, illustrated by Yale Frankel, Say Hello, illustrated by Jane Reisiger, Polly's Grand Party Plan, illustrated by Evie Barrow, All the Words I Need to Know, illustrated by Andrew Joyner, and The Best Hiding Place, illustrated by Sylvia Morris. Just a few to come out this year. (laughs) Jane was the children's publisher at Penguin Books Australia for many years, where she produced books for a wide range of readers from very young children through to young adult. And Jane loves working with young people in schools and the community, exploring ideas, stories, and writing together. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, Angela. Thanks very much. I feel like I should edit that list of recent picture books. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they've all come out this year, so you've had a very busy year as an author, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I've had a very busy couple of years, really. But I think with picture books, you know how they take quite a long time to produce so you know I might write a picture book text and it may be you know three or four or even five years before it actually is a book so a lot of people have said to me in the last couple of years cheapest you've been writing a lot of books but actually quite a lot of them you know some of those texts I wrote seven or eight years ago it's just that they've all been in the queue to come out with various illustrators and things so I I feel like I need to apologize to people and say don't worry it'll be calmer next year I I don't have as many books next year you won't be inundated with Jane Godwin titles (laughs) It's been a busy Jane Godwin year. But we are here to talk about your latest book for older readers, A Walk in the Dark, which is a story about five year nine students who have set the task of hiking on their own with only a torch and a compass through the Otways at night. Inevitably, there are disasters and each of the five main characters learns to have more empathy for others during this night, as well as going through their own internal and physical journey to come out the other side stronger and wiser. Jane, this is such a thrilling, beautifully written adventure story that I absolutely loved reading and I'd love to hear what your inspiration for the story was. Well, thanks very much, Angela. It's very heartening to hear that you enjoyed the the book. The book is dedicated to the memory of Ivan Southerl and certainly when I was a child I really loved Ivan Southerl books and when all my friends were reading Enid Blyton 
I have to say, and I'm embarrassed to say this because I know that 99.9999% of people my age adored Enid Blyton when they were kids. I didn't enjoy Enid Blyton books when I was a child. Like, terrible. Just just lay that on the table right there. Um, <laughs> That's terrible at all, actually. Well, it's funny. I have this memory. I had a friend and she had a beach house. And when I was a little girl, I think I was about, I don't know, between the ages of about eight and ten, And I used to go and stay with her at her beach house and she used to sleep in and so she was one of those late risers. She would wake up at like 10 o'clock in the morning or something and I was always an early riser. So I would wake up at like 6 a.m. and I still have this vision of lying in the little trundle bed beside her bed where I would sleep when I stayed with her and looking. I was right at eye level with her bookshelves and I think, oh, maybe I can read a book while I'm waiting for her to wake up and it was just Ina Blyton the whole way along and I'd be like, oh, (laughs) but I did love the books of Ivan Southerl I loved that it was very contemporary sort of gritty realism and also he often wrote about outsiders or kids that didn't fit in and he often pitted them in some way against they were all you know overcoming challenges often in the natural world so he did a book called Ash Road which was about kids you know in a bushfire and To the Wild Sky was kids in a light plane and on about page three, the pilot of the light plane just has a heart attack and dies. You know, it's like it was the 70s. There was no sort of, you know, molly coddling. So the kids have to fly the plane. And there was another one about a flood, Hill's End. So I I really loved those books. And I think also I have a really strong memory of them because, you know, I was a kid of the sort of late 60s, early 70s. And most of the books we read were imported. They were English or American stories, which I also loved. But I really remember that reading Australian fiction and reading about gum trees. And, you know, in January it was it was hot. It wasn't snowing. And I really remember that feeling of, oh, so our place is a valid place too and somewhere where the stories mean something and somewhere that you can write about. And so I do, with A Walk in the Dark, I do, with each novel I write and picture books too just to some degree I always try and set myself like a challenge like a whether it's a technical aspect of the writing or a stylistic thing or just to sort of try and keep so that you're not writing the same thing over and over again I suppose and with A Walk in the Dark I did quite consciously want to write a book like an Ivan Southern book and the other thing about Southern's books that I really remember as a child was they're very immediate that you know they were often set over a period of 12 hours or you know they're quite sort of tense in that way And when I look back, Falling from Grace, which was a novel I wrote 15 years ago, that also had that sort of structure where it was was set over just a couple of days or it was about five days actually. But A Walk in the Dark is really just set over a period of hours. And so part of the inspiration behind it was quite consciously to write a book channelling Ivan Southall. I also have spent a lot of time in the Otways. I'm lucky enough that my mum's got an old place at Lawn. My mum and dad bought that about just over 30 years ago now. And so I've spent so many summers and winters too down in that part of the world. And it's a very sort of special place for me. So I think I also wanted to write something about that landscape. Mm. Yeah, it's so evocative, the setting. I mean, you really, you describe that bushland so in such a detailed way, but yeah, really, really beautifully. And I loved how the the characters responded to the landscape as well. And, you know, it, it played a really big part. It was almost a character in the book. Yeah, they respond to the landscape in different ways, don't they, Angela? Like Fred is, he's quite an angry young dude. And I think Fred is dealing with his his parents' divorce and sort of repartnering and he he finds that 
you know, he's not managing that very well at this point in his life and he feels a bit abandoned by everyone. And he's quite a creative, artistic person. And so in some ways he really does love that landscape and he does respond to it in a sort of visceral way. But he's almost too angry to let himself do that. Like he knows that his creative, the creative aspect of himself can help him and can heal him, but he's too angry at the point in the story to sort of really go anywhere with that. And I, I did, with the sort of detail in the in the writing, I do always, I think Falling From Grace actually is another book where I felt like the landscape almost did become or the setting was of that, and that book is set at Point Nepean on the Mornington Peninsula, but I felt that that also was like a, real, a character in that story. And mm-hmm. certainly when I was researching A Walk in the Dark, although I knew those forest trails pretty well over the years just walking in them with my family, I took myself into the forest at night and went walking and I completely terrified myself. Sometimes I dragged unsuspecting family members in with me, but I did do a lot of walking in the forest at night and the story is set when it's a supermoon, you know, when the moon is closest to the earth. So it's actually very quite bright. And I'm really worried that when people read the book, they're going to say, how on earth can they see that clearly, you know, when they're in the forest in the dark? And although you're right, Angela, they set off with torches the poor kids, they lose the torches pretty early on, don't they? So they're in the forest at night with no other source of light, really, except a tiny little watch. And they can see, at times they can see quite clearly, but it was amazing. I went walking in the forest when it was the supermoon and it was so bright, like the moon cast a shadow. It was really bright. And then I also went walking when there was no moon and then it was like really dark, like you couldn't see your hand in front of you. But I did really try and immerse myself in the landscape and particularly in the landscape at night. And also the storm, I thought, was a very effective element that sort of drove the the narrative and um, made everything so much harder, didn't it? I hope it's, well, truth is stranger than fiction, but I do throw a lot at those kids, don't I? Like just about everything that could go wrong does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I was amazed. Like there were so many minutes, moments in the story when I had my heart in my mouth and, you know, I couldn't I couldn't think that the stakes would get any higher and then they did again. <laughs> I was just like, oh, these poor kids. <laughs> How do you do that? How did you create such, such great narrative tension? Well, I suppose, well, thank you, Angela. That is, it's always an aim in whatever I write to, I mean, from my days as a publisher, like narrative tension is and dramatic tension is is so important in any story really, but particularly in a story for young people, I think. I do struggle with it a bit. Like, you know, there was some, I can't remember who said it, but sometimes a narrative is described as a beginning, a muddle and an end. And I often think, you know, it's in the middle that I sometimes do, it's hard not to fall a bit flat. And I was very conscious writing this story that the stakes in this kind of story the stakes had to get higher and higher and higher and it really couldn't flatten out in the middle and I'm not really a huge planner but I do I do sort of do a rough plan when I write not really starting at the beginning but I often do quite a bit of writing and then I sit back and I look at what my story is and where it's going and then I do do a bit of a plan and my plans are always on a three pieces of paper and I always draw them diagonally like from the bottom corner to the top corner and it's almost like this physical reminder to myself. And then I just write little dot points of what's happening in each chapter. But the diagonal line is like you've got to make the tension lift. You've, you've got to keep that tension up. So 
it, it, it was particularly a conscious thing in this book. And I suppose also when you've got people out in a landscape, moving through a landscape, it's not easier. But say with my book, As Happy As Here, where the whole thing is set in a hospital but virtually, I found that book harder to keep that tension up in the middle because, you know, they're in one location. The girls can't go out. They're stuck in a hospital ward. There's a lot of dialogue. And this, I was always able to have the people moving and moving through the landscape so that I think that helped a bit with with keeping the tension up. And I suppose also I always knew there was going to be, they were going to be caught in a big storm. And I love that idea of it's almost like the storm with, with adolescence. I always think the storm is sort of some sort of manifestation of their state of mind or something like a storm can be so beautiful and so majestic and yet so destructive. And I often think, you know, you look at, say, someone like Fred in the story and he's got so much potential for great things but he's also got so much potential for self-destruction. And I often think a storm is somehow symbolically, I don't know, it, it represents that. In another one of my books I had a character who was a storm chaser. You know, he would go and find storms and I suppose another part of the inspiration was for the book was I actually read about a Dutch tradition called a dropping and it it is a real thing in Holland and they have it with like scouts and girl guides and things but also with school groups sometimes where they literally take a group of kids, often pre-teen, often like 10-year-olds, and just leave them in the forest at night. They have to find their way back. It's very Dutch. And when I read that I just thought, oh, this is the most fantastic starting off point for a really dramatic story. Yes, well, I did want to ask you about Johan, the teacher who'd been inspired by the Dutch examples. And does this school exist where it it seems like a very relaxed school where they uh, allow the children to stay out all night unsupervised? Yeah, the school doesn't exist, Angela, but it's sort of loosely based on, it's not really based on any school, but it's inspired by somewhere like Press Hill or maybe John Marsden's school or that sort of, yeah, yeah, an alternative school anyway and a school that really encourages kids to solve their own problems, which I know Candlebuck does. But I'm not suggesting for a minute that Candlebuck would let kids go out in the forest (laughs) in the middle of the night. Um, (laughs) But it was sort of inspired by the notion of an alternative school in the bush somewhere and and it's slightly different in my book. They don't go out in the middle of the night. They actually go out in the late afternoon and then they have to make it back to school by midnight. So it's sort of, there's a time limit to it. And I suppose that's the other thing that helps you keep the stakes rising is having a, a time. You know, I always say that to kids when they're writing a story. I'm like, if you put a time limit on it, immediately you've got the, the tension rises. Yeah, but no, there, there isn't a school like that. But I've also done quite a lot of work in international schools, like different types of schools in different parts of the world. And Elle, one of the characters, she's she's a kid who's been to lots of different schools, different international schools. And so it's, I suppose it's sort of inspired by various schools I've seen around. But no, it is really my imagination. And I don't know that anyone would really let kids do that in a school setting. But although the Dutch do. And also, um, you know, they do say in the book that some of the parents are a little bit sceptical and a bit, a bit <laughs> they don't complete, they're not completely, uh, you know, with Johan and his, all these great ideas. They think he does push it a bit far sometimes. Yeah. Yes, and I do wonder if, if they'd let, you know, let it keep happening after this, this adventure that happens. <laughs> exactly. Well, I did. When I've been reading about droppings, I've thought, has there 
you know, in Holland and the real ones. And I've thought, is, do it, you know, has there ever been a real disaster? And <laughs> from what I can read, no one's ever died. <laughs> but, uh, but I think there have been, you know, the couple of times there have been kids actually hit by vehicles, hit by cars, but but they've survived it. And actually recently I did read that even in Holland, maybe there's starting to be a few helicopter parents because now sometimes in droppings in Holland they do have an adult hidden but somewhere in the vicinity of the kids who can keep an eye on them. And in others they do have a phone that they can call an adult if they really need to. But certainly in the traditional dropping they they virtually had a torch and a map and that was it. Amazing, amazing. The five characters, I'd love to talk about them a little bit more. They're all so unique and so different. And, you know, you must do a lot of a lot of work on each of those characters because they, they all had a lot of kind of backstory, a lot of things going on that weren't revealed to us at first and slowly were revealed. Yeah, so I wonder if you could talk about some of them. Uh, maybe Ash. I, I love Ash's perspective on things and and also the way that he's he's trying to be a good man and trying to figure out what what a good man is. Yeah, he is, isn't he, Angela? Yeah, so Ash is when we first meet Ash, he's sort of the guy that everyone likes. He's sort of very easygoing. He's quite a sensitive young man. I, I don't really describe much about what the characters look like, maybe a little bit. And but Ash is, I imagine him as quite a good-looking young man as well. And and the girls, you know, quite like him. He doesn't have a girlfriend, but you know, he he's popular. He's a popular guy at school. And he sort of knows that. He knows that people think he's a nice guy. And we we find out probably about two-thirds of the way through the story that Ash has two mothers. He's a child with single-sex parents. He's, you know, that's not really a big problem for him. It's it's a bit of a problem for Fred or Fred uses it to sort of, because Fred's so angry about his parental situation, he sort of lashes out at Ash about that. But that's something that Ash has obviously dealt with in his life and had to sometimes ask, answer questions about and things. And all the characters are sort of, I'd say they're sort of in the edge of the burgeoning sexuality, if you like. Like, I don't think I could ever write older than about 14 because I just can't <laughs> go there. But um <laughs> But there is a chaste kiss in this book and there's a little bit of romance, isn't there? And there's a suggestion that one of the characters has had a more sort of, uh, you know, uh, teen, has had a relationship with, with an older guy that maybe hasn't worked out that well. But, yeah, I think Ash is really caught, like I see quite a few young men in my life. Like my kids are sort of, you know, my, my kids are 30 and 32 so they're a bit older, but I have nieces and nephews who are in that sort of, 18 to 24 age bracket and I look at I look at them and think about what they're dealing with that's different from perhaps even my kids in in their early 30s and definitely me and and Ash is he's very aware that there's this whole sort of notion of toxic masculinity and and he's really attracted to Layla one of the girls in the group but he really doesn't know what is acceptable for for him and he's trying to work out what she wants and there's sort of this suggestion of, you know, her consent. But he really wants to do the right thing by her. But he does have this strong sort of physical feeling towards her and he doesn't want to do the wrong thing. And Ash is thinking about all those things and trying to work them out in his life and it sort of comes to a bit of a head when he is 
in the cave with Layla and he really wants to kiss her and he sort of, he wants to do the right thing, but he is he's a bit confused by it. And I do definitely see young men in my life that they are struggling with some of those issues and, and how to be a good man when we're perhaps redefining what a good man is or, or what our expectations of a, of a man are. I know quite a few um, friends of mine who have sons that age I was talking to one of them recently and her son has a, has a steady girlfriend and she just said, I'm so, I'm so glad he's got the steady girlfriend because it's a minefield for both young men and young women if they're going out and, you know, I don't know, having a one-night stand or whatever, it's just very loaded and very fraught. So I think Ash is aware of all that and he, and he desperately wants to be a good person and his parents are good people and he knows they're good people and they've modelled you know, healthy relationships to him. And I see Ash as someone who will always have healthy relationships, but he is trying to make sense of the way we're redefining masculinity, I suppose, and and what a good man is and how do you approach a girl if you're attracted to her in the correct way. And I guess the alternative or the opposite of Ash is is the the drunken louts in the car with the guns who who kind of uh, upset the walk and, and provide another level of dramatic tension in the story yeah and they are toxic they, they are toxic. Definitely toxic. toxic masculinity writ large yes and I suppose that's you know maybe something that I'm thinking about in the book of there are a lot of guys like that and there are also a lot of guys like Ash but yes they do provide a well they provide a lot of tension they provide a counterpoint to Ash and and also maybe Fred too is sort of Fred doesn't like those guys either but Fred can also be quite aggressive and he's sort of participated in their sorts of behaviour in the past and and he regrets it now, I suppose. But, yeah, I did wonder for a while whether I would go into particularly the main one of those louts in the in the ute. I, in actually some earlier drafts I had a little bit more backstory about him, but then in the end I, I sort of took that out because I thought it's not really his story. And Elle, one of the other main characters, she thinks about it too, like she's a girl who... She's sort of aware of her physicality and she's quite striking. Like I imagine Ella, she's tall, she's got long blonde hair, she's very fit and she describes a time where, you know, men were looking at her and she found that really uncomfortable but then she says, well, when is it okay to want someone to look at your body? Like so she's also thinking about those. They're all sort of on the verge of having to have adult relationships and they're trying to make sense of it, I suppose. But Elle also is sort of coming from a a different you know, standpoint of thinking about, you know, her self-esteem and her sense of herself as a female and how, what's the way she can navigate that, you know, as she enters adulthood. Yeah, and also that, I get you, you touch on it, I don't think you go in it too heavily, but that sexual aggression coming off those boys is is quite terrifying, I think, for the characters. And, yeah, as a, as a bookseller, I wouldn't want to put that in the hands of a, a you know, a child who was kind of under... 11 or 12, really. Um, no, I wouldn't either, Angela. Yeah, and there is, I think in the four books I've written for this age group, I try and keep it quite subtle, some of those references or some of those nuances so that if it's a more mature reader, they'll understand exactly what that means. And if it's a less mature reader, they might just think, oh, they're angry. So I try and leave it a little bit open and not force the issue. But, yeah, there's definitely sexual aggression from those guys and Elle completely feels it. And Crystal, the other girl, does to some degree too, but she doesn't really understand it. And Ash does as well. Like they're, they're almost sexually aggressive towards Ash as well. 
but more so towards L. So that's interesting what you say about the age group because, like, with the walk in the dark, with as happy as here, with when rain turns to snow and with falling from grace, you know, people say, oh, they're YA, and then sometimes there'll be a review and they'll be like, oh, this seems so much younger than YA or something, and I'm like, yeah, it's not really YA because I, I see them for 11 to 14-year-olds yeah. um, with the yeah. sweet spot being sort of a mature 12-year-old or 13-year-old. So I don't really see them as being YA, but they're not middle grade. I would call them upper middle grade, I suppose. But Yes, well, that's funny you say that because I was going to ask you about that and say as a bookseller, you, these books are tricky for us to shelve you know, because, in fact, when Rain Turns to Snow and As Happy as Here, we keep in middle fiction because there's nothing too, you know, hardcore in there but a walk in the dark we're kind of we're more keeping that in young adult that's interesting you know how they're in year nine well I had them from in most of my time writing this story they were in year eight and then I kept thinking just that's you know that that yeah the suggestion of sort of sexual aggression of the guys in the forest and also the suggestion of the relationship that Layla, one of the girls, has had previously with an older boy. Yeah. And also it's it's around Easter time, so it's really first term, end of first term. So I kept thinking they almost feel like they're towards the end of year eight, but if it's first term, they probably should be in year nine. So I, up until almost when the book went to print, I was still toying with whether they should be year eight, year nine. Yeah. You know, when I first wrote this book, I thought it felt a bit younger than the others, but now I don't. Like, because I, I think I just thought, oh, it's a bit of a straightforward adventure story. Like, you know, it's, it, it, it's, I hate to say it, Enid Blyton. It's almost a little bit, you know, like five <laughs> set out. Oh my God, I've channeled Enid Blyton. Five set out into the forest. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes I think, oh, for God's sake, I should just write middle grade or YA, not fiddle around with this little area in between. But then often people say to me, oh no, because there's, not that much that is there for that yeah. that little in between yeah. group. So please keep writing for them. I suppose I would put maybe Sue Whiting, Nova Wheatman, Wheatman, yeah, um, even Tristan Bags. But maybe those three are a tiny bit younger. Where there's a little bit of romance, oh. but you know, it's not it's not too heavy going. Yeah, but it is. I think it is. I can see myself writing middle grade, but not really YA because, like, yeah, the whole. Uh, mm, I just don't think I could do one. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need to worry about that because that's a category that a publisher and a bookseller have to worry about. And, you know, as a writer, I think you have to write the books for the young people that, you know, most drawn to and that age group that you're most drawn to. Which leads me to my next question really is that, you know, do you have a, a particular reader in mind when you're writing these? Because you go, you do lots of workshops with kids. You must get a lot of kind of inspiration and ideas from the kids that you work with. Yeah, I do, Angela, but not, I don't suppose I get like concrete ideas, but I, I do think that being immersed, you know, just hanging out with the age group is helpful, even just in a sort of osmosis kind of way it's not like I think that kid just gave me a great idea but if I've just spent like for example Anna Walker and I a couple of weeks ago we spent a week in Perth just working with little kids and we had such a fun time and they were so gorgeous and it yeah just sort of reminds you of their world and even the way they speak and 
Like one little boy kept coming up to me and tapping me on the shoulder all the time. Like he's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Like just little gestures like that. And I think, yeah, that is what little kids do sort of thing. <laughs> and he was right at the level when I was sitting down, his little face was right there. <laughs> so I do, when I'm writing, I suppose the person, oh, this is a cliche, but I suppose the person I'm writing for is to some degree me at that age that I was. Like yeah. with A Walk in the Dark, for example, I wanted to write a book that, as a 12-year-old, I would have enjoyed. It's always coming from a place in you, I suppose, but I don't consciously write for a a person, but I do often think, I often think of like when I wrote As Happy Is Here, for example, that's dedicated to my niece Sophie, and when I wrote that book I was thinking about how Sophie might perceive it and what she might enjoy. So, yeah, there's a little bit of that, I suppose, but more... It's a bit vaguer than that, really. It's sort of partly for me, partly for the child I was, partly for kids I've known maybe, but um, it's not a sort of practical thing. It's more just a immersing myself in their world kind of thing. Like certainly when my own kids were that age, that was actually when I started writing for that age. And then I, I have a lot of nieces and nephews who are, well, they're a little bit old. Maybe I will write, write YA because they're a bit older than this now. But um, <laughs> but certainly I spend a lot of time with them, talking with them. And and actually with When Rain Turns to Snow, I spoke with them a lot. Of, I basically interviewed them a lot about the whole social media sort of plot line of that book. And they really did help me in a very practical way with that. So I wouldn't have really been able to write that book if I hadn't had access to sort of, you know, eight teenagers at the time very handy (laughs) if you do your research yeah I mean you do I love how you touch very lightly on on things like climate change and social media there's a that little bit about the 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 photographs that were taken of one of the characters and I thought we should I'd love to mention Crystal as well because she was such an interesting character and you know Ellie was so annoyed with her for so long we were all so annoyed with her for so long <laughs> she was a really interesting character I'd love to hear your perspective on her I think Elle is also quite baffled that because Elle is someone who gets on with everyone she sort of prides herself as being someone who can get on with anyone and she's lived all over the world and she's you know she's a person who finds it easy to make friends and and so she's a bit confused herself why she can't get on with Crystal and Crystal is an exchange student and she's come over from America and Elle anticipates it as oh it's going to be great we're going to be best friends and I'm going to go back to America and have the reciprocal exchange and it's all going to be wonderful and actually that little bit did come from real life I do know someone who had an exchange student and thought it would be fabulous and it wasn't (laughs) (laughs) and I'm sure that happens but you know maybe you don't you don't hear about that so often but I suppose we would say that Crystal is you know, on the spectrum. But that was handled so nicely because that, you know, that wasn't really a big deal for the kids, you know. No, well, that th- thanks, Angela, because that's really what I wanted it to, how I wanted it to come across, that, you know, they, they sort of realise that she's a bit different. But, you know, there's a lot of kids who are a bit different. I mean, you know, we're all a bit different, aren't we? So, but Crystal, she is on the surface. She's pretty annoying. She repeats herself all the time. She doesn't listen to people. She's quite rude. And Elle feels, you know, I'm really trying to, you know, uh, make her feel at home and my parents are really trying and, you know, she doesn't even call them by their names. But then as the story unfolds, we realise that Crystal is really dealing with quite a lot of 
trauma of her own, as well as being a bit neurodiverse. She also has this, this terrible trauma that's happened back home. And it sort of suggested that her mum probably pushed her into this. You sort of think that her mum is maybe not coping either. I don't want to give away the story completely for people who haven't read it, but something's happened to Crystal's father. So you get the feeling that this is a family in crisis and, and they've sort of sent Crystal off to sort of because, you know, maybe they think it will be good for her or the mum isn't coping anyway. It's just is something she needs to do. And so we do come to understand Crystal a lot better or sort of empathise with her and her struggle. And also she proves herself pretty pretty helpful in a she practical does. sense. Yeah, yeah. Crystal <laughs> so she can really fire a gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's interesting what you say about the climate change and social media. I feel like they're sort of the two, like every generation has uh, challenges, don't they, and stuff they have to deal with. But I feel like for this generation of kids, you know, they will probably be, two, be the two main forces that are so challenging and so difficult. I suppose in When Rain Turns to Snow, as well as in A Walk in the Dark, both those things are sort of referenced because to me they're so much part of the world of the young person and and both of them have the potential to really alter and potentially destroy everything we value. So <laughs> I didn't really include those things to try and be didactic or whatever, but I feel like every young person that I you know, is in my life has had to deal at some level with managing both those quite frightening aspects oh, yeah. of our in modern life. Absolutely, absolutely. They, they all have to grapple with them and, um, yeah, I think the way you acknowledge it is really beautiful and uh, I think, you know, it's tougher than, than it ever has been perhaps ever to be a, a young person, you know. I really yeah, I think, I look, maybe every generation thinks it's it's toughest but I feel like, you know, I, I was a sort of teenager in the 80s, so, you know, we had uh, the threat of nuclear war and that sort of the Cold War, mm. but I feel like climate change, it's the whole planet. <laughs> and also it's, it's as a, like, it, it's really like adults have stuffed it up and are not really, like, you know, sort of doing a bit better now maybe. Yeah, not really you know, doing much at but all. But not really, and that's terrifying for kids. And I also think... This has come at a time too where there's the whole social media thing and also just the internet in general. Okay, now I sound like an 80-year-old, but the internet in general. So I often think we, with kids, they see, you know, what is it? Every child's supposed to have seen porn by the time they're 10 or something now. They see everything on the internet that is terrifying and that they have no sort of wherewithal to cope with. So there's all of that that they're seeing on a screen we all live in these houses with no gardens anymore and you can't, you know, don't let your kid ride the bike to school or whatever. So all those physical freedoms are gone. So it's like what we're saying to kids is the world is a terrifying place and we don't trust you to be able to go out there. I mean, every generation has had its own challenges to face, but I, I agree. I think this, this generation of young people have certainly had a whole lot thrown at them really. And in the book too, you would have read that Elle has that, she talks about that, thing that happened when she lived in Sweden where the children who just shut down, like that they they literally go into a coma. It's called resignation syndrome. And that is a real thing as well, where it's children of asylum seekers in Sweden. It's often when they're told that they have to go back to where they came from and they literally physically go into a coma. And when I read about that, I thought, wow, that's like, that's a 
sort of a really powerful symbol of literally giving up hope to live. And Elle, you know, reflects on that as well. And I suppose that's why I could never have a book at the end that didn't have any any hope, you know, that that's so important to me to because yeah. really what, what have we got if we don't have hope? So, okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of hope at the end of A Walk in the Dark. Um, they all go through such transformation and they become so close through their harrowing night <laughs> and it's a wonderfully inspiring book so thank you so oh, thank you very much when some friends of mine were reading it and you know that there's that there's also a sixth person isn't there there's a little girl called yeah. Tessa yeah there's five and yeah. some people said to me oh no what is, what's going to happen with Tessa <laughs> but then my friend my friend Davina said look it's Janie she's what do you think she's going to do with Tessa? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, look, I think books for young people—they they should have happy endings. You know, we need to to give them hope. I agree. I think they. I think it's psychologically important because I think it's like literally saying that sure, terrible things happen, and terrible things will probably happen to you, but you have the strength to, you know, move through that and emerge on the other side with your integrity intact. And I suppose that's what I was doing with those characters in A Walk in the Dark or trying to. Yes, so beautiful. Uh, I'm going to be selling lots of it coming into Christmas. Are you working on another young adult book or will you do another picture book next? What's next for you? I'm working on another picture book with Anna Walker. Mm-hmm. You've been inspired when you're over in WA together. Uh, well, we were actually working on it before then, but that will be our ninth picture book together. And I really want to get to ten. I was talking to some kids about that, and they said, "Oh, what? Before you die?" I'm like, "Well, yeah, I suppose so." <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm working on a book with Anna, and I am um, working on another novel for sort of this age group again. I'm also working on a junior, like a junior fiction thing, Angela, for sort of six to eight-year-olds about a little girl called Isabel. So I'm working on that as well at the moment. (laughs) All right. I I think that is more than enough for our wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Jane. Really lovely to talk to you. I could talk to you for hours about books. Well, thank you, Angela. Thank you so much. And thank you for your enthusiasm for the book. That is makes me feel um, reassured, happy. <laughs> Such a pleasure. And, um, you know, it, it's going to suit so many different kids. And I think they're, they're really going to love the story and really dive into this um, amazing adventure and get a lot out of it. So thank you for all your hard work you do for children's literature. And um, all the best. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, and pay my earnest respects to Elvis past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening.